This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Biden administration could require all federal employees to get COVID vaccines or regular COVID tests as soon as Thursday. President Biden said Tuesday a White House order was, quote, under consideration. Federal Times reports President Biden made that comment during a speech to employees in the intelligence community. Carlos del Toro is one step closer to becoming the next Navy secretary. The Senate Armed Services Committee sent his nomination to the full Senate for a confirmation vote on Tuesday. USNI News reports the committee approved him unanimously. A House Armed Services subcommittee version of the National Defense Authorization Act doesn't stop the Navy from cutting cruisers. Last week's Senate Armed Services Committee mark included language that stops the service from retiring the cruisers to spend money on other platforms. Defense News reports Hask subcommittee markups are underway this week. The full committee will mark the bill starting September 1st. Walter Reed National Military Medical Center is developing a pan-coronavirus vaccine. It's in the early stages of human trials. Army scientists say COVID-19, though, may not be the big one. Dr. Kayvon Majerad is director of the Emerging Infectious Diseases Branch at the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research. Dr. Majerad, welcome. It's great to have you on the program. That comment about this one not being the big one, it seems pretty big to a lot of us that have dealt with it over the last 18 months. What do you mean by that? Well, if you look at coronaviruses as a family uh, and look at this one in comparison to those, we had SARS-1 back in 2002. Uh, that was fortunately only in about, um, uh, you know, uh, 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 less than 10,000 individuals and it had a mortality rate of about 10%. And then MERS, another coronavirus that appeared in the Middle East back in 2012, has a mortality rate of 35%. So now we have something that obviously has circulated the world and affected many people. It's become a pandemic, but its mortality rate is much lower, a fraction of what those other coronaviruses that we've seen in the past have. So there's always a potential for a coronavirus that has a higher mortality rate, and there's potential for other viruses as well uh, that we've seen, like Ebola, for example, that can cause a lot more um, mortality, a lot more um, health problems uh, long-term than we've seen with COVID. It's not to minimize the impact, the devastating impact that COVID has had. It's just to say that there are other threats that are lurking out there that we need to be prepared for in the future. Yes, in that context, doctor, the, the, the intersection of a virus that spreads very rapidly uh, like COVID does and causes the higher levels of mortality in the, the ones that you described would be much bigger than what we're dealing with now. What are you learning and what can you learn and your peers in, in the medical community learn about from the ones that you've already dealt with that can apply to something that we don't know exactly what it may be coming down the road? 
One of the things that we're trying to focus on uh, within the U.S. Army in our vaccine program here and had been doing prior to the pandemic is focusing on um, categories or families of viruses and trying to take information that we're learning from one virus and applying it to all the all its cousins, for example, in that family and develop uh, broader, more universal vaccines, diagnostics and treatments for those families of viruses so that the next cousin in that family that comes along will have something already prepared for. And so we've learned quite a bit about the structure of the viruses, the life cycle of the viruses, um, and our immune responses to those viruses. But we've also learned not just the science of the viruses themselves, but how are uh, different agencies within the government, how are uh, industry partnerships, our partnerships with academia can all come together very quickly and in a very organized way towards developing vaccines and other solutions. Um, really almost, you know, we, we initially we called it warp speed, but uh, it, it's not uh, all that uh, fictional to say that we went faster than we've ever gone before and faster than we've ever even imagined that we could develop a vaccine. So those lessons as well can be taken over to the next threats. Does this approach at, at looking at the, this cousin's perspective, doctor, ameliorate, mitigate, or maybe even eliminate the concern that exists today about, I have the vaccine, but I don't know if it protects me from the Delta variant and all of that. Is, is that the hump that you're trying to get over by taking this cousin's approach, doctor? Yeah, uh, it's a good point. That's, that's the first step is making sure we develop vaccines and treatments that are covering the uh, the closer uh, uh, relatives, the cousins that are much more, the first cousins, I would say, uh, like the different variants, but also not stopping there, uh, taking the extra step to make sure that we develop a vaccine now that anticipates the next SARS, the next COVID, that's the general idea that we're trying to develop now. We just have a little bit more than a minute left. What does the progression of this work look like, or is it not possible to predict that based on where the research takes you, doctor? I think the important thing to get across in this last uh, uh, minute here is that we have the tools and the technology and the knowledge base now to develop these broad platforms of vaccines and treatments for families of viruses. If you look at the big viruses that have occurred over the past uh, 50 years or so, they've all been viruses in about two dozen families. Um, and that's it. Uh, and they've come from animal reservoirs. And so we know what's coming. And we, and we have the technology to develop tools to anticipate what's coming. It's just a matter of investment and a focus on those particular families of viruses. Dr. Majerig, congratulations on the work you're doing and thank you very much for joining me to talk about it today. I appreciate your time, sir. Thank you very much. Coming next, Congress gets down to work on the military's budget. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the budget boosters and the budget cutters may both be wrong. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
The House Armed Services Committee's markup of his National Defense Authorization Act is underway tonight. The SASC started its markup last week, but the numbers they authorize and the appropriators appropriate may be all wrong. Brian Clark is senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. He's former special assistant to the chief of naval operations, former director of the CNO's Commander's Action Group, and writing about innovation tools for combatant commanders in Defense One with co-author Dan Pat. Uh, Brian, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. You write in this piece, Pentagon spending, uh, according to one side, should grow at least 3%. The other side says the slight funding cut wasn't uh, deep enough. And then you write, neither side is right. Where are they getting it wrong, Brian? Uh, well, thanks for having me on, Francis. Um, I think the, the big uh, challenge that the, the defense committees have is trying to split the or, fair, or rather thread the needle here, uh, because if they give the Department of Defense too much extra money, it tends to promote the futurism that's led to a lot of failed programs over the last few years where we keep pushing out you know, to 20 or 30 years when we expect to get the capability we need to deter China. Uh, you saw this with some of the Navy's efforts on like DDGX uh, and even the Ford class carrier. Uh, and you see this with uh, the Army with the future combat system. So a lot of times, We'll give the Department of Defense more money thinking that's going to improve things. And all it does is simply increase their appetite for greater technologies, which require longer times. And on the progressive side, uh, if we cut defense spending at this point, um, the defense budget is pretty much consumed with readiness costs and mountain power costs. So if you reduce the budget, you're just going to have to shrink the military. And that doesn't help us with regard to this competition we have with China and Russia. So do you take comfort then from the fact that, in, for example, in my conversation with Admiral Gilday last week, we talked about the fact that he's focusing on 2025 and what capabilities right. he can deliver for 25. Sounds like, in your view, he's on the right track. Exactly. I think you know, Admiral uh, Phil Davidson, a few months ago, when he gave his last uh, posture statement, uh, sort of rang a, a clarion call for everybody to realize that the, the challenge from China is a this decade problem uh, and not a 2030s problem. Uh, Admiral Mike Studeman, who is his intelligence chief, the J2 at Indo-PACOM, um, also said the same thing. So they both said that we've got this problem with China. It's going to manifest itself this decade. If we continue to push out the year in which we think we're going to have the technology to counter China, we're just going to be whistling past the graveyard and open ourselves up to the vulnerability of them being able to get uh, what they want in the near term, either Taiwan or the Senkakus or Scarborough Shoal, some you know, element of, uh, of the local geography that they've been uh, eyeing for a while. We shouldn't talk then anymore, should we, about a 355-ship fleet? I mean, it sounds, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but it yeah. sounds like that's a moot point because that number is a number that we would uh, get to according to the shipbuilding plans in the 2030s headed toward 2040. And that's yeah. out of the scope of, of recognition, it sounds like. Yeah, it, right. And that's exactly what we should be thinking about is, you know, almost putting the Navy or the military services on this wartime footing of thinking about how are we going to improve capability in the near term uh, and stop worrying about what the force looks like in 20 years. So this 355 ship Navy in the 2030s may be irrelevant if we can't deter China in the near term, uh, because it may be that what we see today from China is what we just want to have continue into the future. We're not going to have a resolution. We just need to continue to push them off and continue to con you know, contain their aggression uh, and until they finally decide to choose you know, to focus on domestic matters. So another passage that resonated from this piece based on the conversations you and I have been having for 10, 12 years was this. The Pentagon shouldn't give up on future weapon systems and platforms, but innovations delivering the 20s in the 30s or 40s will be irrelevant for the reason that you just outlined. Right. This means that instead of numbers, we need to talk about capabilities and where we expect those capabilities to execute, doesn't it, Brian? 
Exactly. We should think about how we can combine what we have or we're going to have in, in the near term uh, and what systems we could develop in the near term, relatively near term technologies that are pretty mature. Um, how can we combine those uh, in theater at the combatant commander's uh, uh, AOR, area of responsibility, to give the best capability to adapt and respond to what the Chinese and the Russians are doing? I, I think we're finding that the COCOMs are where we have to have innovation right now rather than trying to rely on the services to do that entirely uh, because their time cycles are entirely out of line with what the is posing. Um, some of the platforms that Admiral Gilday talked about delivering for 25, new submarines, frigates, right. new destroyer. Is that the right stuff that we need, especially thinking about the South China Sea and the potential threats there? Uh, it is, um, and that, and those the, those are already in production. So the idea would be let's ramp up the production or sustain the production of those platforms we already have in the pipeline. They can deliver before the end of the 2030s and give us additional capacity. We might also need to rethink or come up with some creative ways to keep the platforms we already have. The Navy's looking at retiring seven of its cruisers. Uh, a few of those cruisers probably should be retired because of their material condition. A few others might need to be sustained in some kind of uh, less than fully mission capable condition so you can have access to their missile cells. Um, that's not going to be fun duty for the sailors that are necessarily assigned to them, but it may be a necessity to have that capacity to address this near-term challenge. Um, you use a term to wrap this piece that I think is fascinating, Brian, with the window of potential Chinese adventurism now opening pentagon leaders must do the most with the force they uh, focus on doing the most with the force they have 30 seconds left what does that involve specifically in your view that involves uh, thinking about how we compose forces in the field rather than doing it in the industrial model with the services providing them uh, up front. So the idea would be, I want to customize the forces that, that the COCOM has, like I customize my iPhone, as opposed to having the forces delivered by the services with no ability to adjust them or adapt them. Um, that's where the innovation is going to have to occur, given the short timelines we have. Brian Clark, thanks very much, as always. Thank you, Francis. Up next, changing the conversation for national security. Straight ahead on Government Matters, reshaping the Pentagon with a new generation of leaders. We archive every episode of Government Matters at govmatters.tv. I'll be right back. Welcome back. The Department of Defense has a new Assistant Secretary for, of Defense for Indo-Pacific Security, among other spots. The Senate confirmed Eli Ratner and five other national security nominees. Suzanne Spaulding, Senior Advisor of Homeland Security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. She's former Undersecretary for the National Protection and Programs Directorate at the Department of Homeland Security. Suzanne, welcome. It's good to see you. These nominations and confirmations lead me to the, the concept of the next generation generation of national security professionals. Um, you're thinking and, and writing and talking about how to develop that, especially through civics and civic education. What's the role that that plays in developing this next generation that will be the second half of the Biden team and whatever administration succeeds his, uh, developing a new cohort for the national security community? Such a great question, Francis. Uh, thank you uh, for introducing the, the subject. It is one that is very near and dear to my heart. I, uh, I think civics education is critical for our entire population uh, to uh, be able to sustain our democracy. So I see it as a national security imperative. 
But it's particularly important, I think you're right, for that generation, next generation of leaders in our national security community, whether it's in the military or civilian national security positions. It's so important to not just know that there are three branches of government uh, and how our government is structured, but why. So to not only understand what the rules are, why, that we have posse comitatus, for example, that limits the role of the military inside the United States, but why do we have that? What is the history? What, is the, what are our shared values, our shared principles that underlie that? When we talk about how public servants uh, in national security and across government take an oath, not to the president, but to the constitution, why is that? What is it about our democracy uh, that, and our shared values and principles that led to the development of an oath to the Constitution? Uh, and so I think it is critically important as we confront the challenges uh, that are you know, threatened to tear apart our democracy, uh, quite candidly, that our leaders understand what our shared values are, what our principles are. I don't mean to imply with the comments that I made that I'm worried that the next generation is not prepared. One of the things as things have started to open up and people are getting together in person again, I, one of the things I'm reminded of is that the young people who are from Washington or who come to Washington to kind of fill the funnel are as talented and capable as they've ever been, but I am also reminded by the human capital experts that I deal with in government that if you're not constantly nurturing uh, that, that cohort, that eventually the risk is that that could go away. What are the most important things that you think the national defense community can do, both in and out of government, to continue to perpetuate that funnel, to continue to provide the kind of information and education that you just described? Yeah, so, so there are two issues that you've raised there. One is to make sure that we have a pipeline of talent that we are continuing to nurture, and that is diverse, as diverse as our population, that brings that diversity of viewpoints and perspectives that will enhance our national security and without which we cannot be. Uh, uh, as secure. And so there are wonderful organizations out there like Girls Security, on whose board I have the honor of sitting, uh, but many others that are working to diversify that pipeline, and we need to continue to encourage that. But as you say, you know, we're drawing these leaders from the, from the population, and they are only as well prepared as our education system uh, in, enables them to be. And that's why I think it's so critically important that we reinvigorate civics education uh, in schools all across the country. We've allowed it to atrophy. Uh, and unfortunately, in part uh, because of the emphasis we put on STEM, we need STEM, strong STEM education, but we need to understand that we need strong civics education to advance our national security as well. There's a delicate dance though, isn't there, about what various people in localities and states believe civics education is and what it should comprise. Is there a risk of trying to determine that from one certain location, whether it's Washington or a state capital or whatever, or is the risk that it becomes subject to whatever somebody in some jurisdiction thinks is appropriate? Yeah, and it's a, it's a great question, Francis. We, uh, again, this goes back to some of our fundamental principles, which are that at, you know the content of education is set at the state and local level. That doesn't mean that the federal government doesn't have a really important role to play in promoting 
civics education generally and being able to provide resources to support uh, the, the reintroduction and reinvigoration of civics education in high school and in elementary school. So there are appropriate roles to play. The federal government should not be setting content uh, and the bipartisan bicameral legislation that's been introduced in Congress is very clear about that. Uh, the federal government needs to play a role in helping to reinvigorate civics without setting the content. Um, I, I group, wonderful groups like iCivics have set forth a roadmap for democracy, uh, and that's important as well, to, to give a sense that we're not just teaching the three branches of government, but the role of individuals in holding those institutions accountable, in being more effective agents of change to move us toward that more perfect union. Uh, Suzanne, 30 seconds left. How does one measure or can one measure uh, the benefit to the national security community in some tangible way? Or is it an intangible that one senses at some point in the future? Well, it is, I think it is hard uh, to uh, measure the impact on national security you can certainly uh, assess the level of civic literacy within our national security ranks, within our government. You know, there's a law in the books that requires civilian departments and agencies to provide civic education to its employees on Constitution Day September, in September. Um, and I think we need to, to uh, dust that off and, uh, and get back to some civics education for our adult population as well. Suzanne Spaulding, thanks very much as always. Wonderful to have you on the program again. Great to be here. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's at govmatters.tv, and you get a preview and a recap of every show when you sign up for our daily newsletters. You just enter your email in the red box on the website. I'm back in two minutes. North America's largest maritime expo and conference is back in person. The Navy League Sea Airspace 2021 is next Monday through Wednesday at Gaylord National Harbor. You'll see speakers from the Navy, Marine Corps, Coast Guard, Maritime Administration, and Congress. You can learn more and sign up at govmatters.tv events. That's the latest from Washington. Government Matters is here weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on 7 News so you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by James Mahoney and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. You have been listening to the Government Matters Podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes. Tony Bardo is Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, it's great to talk to you again. I thought of you the other day because I saw another agency make an award 
on the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract at General Services Administration. You have been telling me for a long time about how important this contract is. Why is it so important, Tony? It's so important because the agencies have been dealing with 20-year-old network technology um, for 20 years. And, and basically, this is their opportunity to use this important contract to modernize the network, to keep up with constituents who are demanding more digital-centric services. And the government needs the, the network to, uh, to step up to those uh, expectations. This is a long-term contract. How is it built so that when Hughes rolls out something cool, say, five years from now, that the agencies will be able to access that? The agencies will be able to leverage new technologies that come down the line during the life of this contract? GSA's got a good plan for that. They've got a plan for the on-ramping of, of services. Uh, frankly, the, the, the current SD-WAN movement is an example of that. SD-WAN did not exist when EIS was awarded. But GSA's been working hard with the agencies and with the primes to add these services. So what's important is that the agencies demand that the, um, that, that the primes offer various kinds of SD-WAN solutions. There are a number of them out there. They need to not just offer their direct example, examples of uh, proprietary services, but there are multiple platforms. Agencies should really meet with the primes and say, here's what I want. Here's, what I want to, here's where I want to go over the next 10 to 15 years. Time is of the essence, it strikes me, Tony, because uh, there's a countdown clock going here for agencies to get these contracts awarded. Um, if you're just starting this process at the beginning, first of all, shame on you, I guess. But um, secondly, what's the role of the vendor to help uh, uh, an agency move the ball? Well, I think, I think the idea here is to, if you haven't gotten started yet, make sure you're asking the right questions of industry, that you're asking for the right kind of services. If you're still s stuck on an RFP or a format that asks for older technology, there are, and, and there are unfortunately, Francis, a number of RFPs and fair opportunities out there that have asked for the old stuff. And it's it's like, the, the to, to some extent, I'm, I'm, I'm advocating for timeline be damned, you ought to, stop stop the presses start over again and recast the requirement to reflect what's what's needed uh, what agencies should expect from their networks today we just have uh, 20 seconds left tony you have you're casting this as an opportunity for agencies to transform the way they do things and not just write a new contract it sounds like oh absolutely it's 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 critical it's the right time the technology is very very fresh and can carry the agencies for a long time forward. Tony Bardo of Hughes, great to talk to you, my friend. Thank you, Francis.